Well, welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember him only as hip is my guest. And I have to tell you, the weather, I don't want to complain about the weather, but it's it's still in the 80s. And I looked at my phone, and I always go to the app, and I, I go, and it's the Weather Channel app, and I look for the next 10 days, and it's still 80. And I, and I'm, I, you know, and I know the rest of the East is, is getting their asses kicked, but it's I sit there, and I have all these nice sweaters, and I look in my closet, and I can't wear them. And I'm, I'm like, right now, no lie, I'm in a T-shirt and shorts. Okay, this should not be the way it's going in January. It's actually February. No, it's January. So by the time the Super Bowl, I'm going to have a Super Bowl party, I'm going to have to put the air conditioning on, which it just doesn't make sense. It just disgusts me. But that's that's the weather, I guess. That's just the way it is. And, and my guest is uh, an East Coast guy. Uh, we have uh, Timothy Stock. How are you, Tim? Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Now, you're from Doylestown. Doylestown, PA. Yeah. Now, which is funny because Doylestown, they, used to, they have a comedy club there for years above Poco's Restaurant. Yes, that was after my time. But okay. yes, yeah. Now, you see, but it's just so funny because Doylestown is down in Northeast Extension, right? Is it? No. No, no, no. It's not that far. It's uh, Doylestown is in the center of Bucks County. It's the county okay. seat of Bucks County. And uh, when I grew up there, it was a town unto itself. There were very few. There were people that commuted to New York, and then there were some people that commuted to Philly, but for some reason, it was this little town that sort of existed on its own, and it was, real. looking back on it, just an idyllic place to grow up. I, I had a tremendous... I loved it so much. I named my son Doyle. I just... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I love it. I still love it there, and still have a ton of friends who live there now. And Now, when, now so, because people, uh, you don't know, the the... Pennsylvania is not too far from the Jersey Shore. Did you go to the Jersey Shore or did you go to Maryland when you were little? Jersey Shore. But my parents were uh, my parents were both from New York. Okay. And my parents did not like Philadelphia, which is I'm not like all my sports go to New York because my father would not allow us to sort of root for Philadelphia teams. Okay, because there's such a rivalry. And he would only take us to Yankee Stadium. He would only take us to the Garden. He would only take us to see Giant games. So I grew up a New York sports fan, and my parents tended to sort of vacation to the north. Like, we went to the Jersey Shore, but it was more like Long Beach Island. Right, LBI. Barnicket Light. Okay. You know, I didn't get to, like, the Jersey Shore until my high school years when we would go to Ocean City and places like Like that. Senior week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So now, you know, when you were a kid, did you follow acting and writing and comedy or were you i mean because that's your career path you've taken. yeah but like what kind of kid were you did you watch was there influences you watched on tv that watch, made you chose this path yeah you know it's weird I, when i was a kid i just wanted to be a sports announcer that's what i did too i same thing i used to know every single stat yes and i remember my mom said to me when i was younger she said you should just go to nfl films that just opened in marlton and that's she funny. said you should go there and just Ask them to sweep up the floors, and you know that's and a good like idea. Twelve, and I never did, and I I probably would have been had my own show on NFL Network <laughs> now. But so you wanted to be Steve Cooper instead of John Facenda, exactly. Did you? <laughs> and Harry Callis, <laughs> yeah. Didn't did you love sports? Is that what it was? Loved you, it. Okay. Loved the sports. Was not good at it. Thought I was good at it, um, especially basketball. Just thought I was the real deal, and I was bad. Well, you, how tall are you? I'm six four now, but I was short when I was a kid. I grew. I literally grew eight inches in one year in what, 10th what, grade. Okay, so that's just, well, first of all, for parents, that's a nightmare because you have to buy all the new clothes. Yeah. And then you're afraid you're going to grow again. Yeah. I think my parents were so happy that it finally hit because I was so frustrated that all my friends were so big and hairy and, 
you know, endowed and none of that for me, (laughs) still none of that for me. But uh, anyway, so so I love sports. And then finally, you know, I always love movies and uh, Doylestown had a Saturday matinee and we always went. My brother and I always went or my friend Clem Taylor, who's now a producer for 60 Minutes, my oldest friends also from Doylestown. Uh, we'd go to movies all the time, and I just I always loved it. But it wasn't really. My brother did a play in high school, and he suddenly said, "Like I think I want to be an actor." And it's weird. It's like it gave me the permission to say I want to do that too. Okay. Because I wanted to be a sports announcer, but I really liked making people laugh. Uh, my high school, Central Bucks East, I went to for a year. We had we were one of the first high schools in the country that had closed circuit television. All right. And I would open up the morning. I would do the morning announcements and the morning sports, but I would make fun of people. You know, it was my chance to get up and, and do shtick. So that sort of gave me the permission to say, I want to get into comedy. And then as I got in, I went to Boston College. And when I was there, I saw a group called The Proposition. They were a group out of Boston, an improv group. Now, what was your major when you went to Boston? I was a theater and communications okay. major. So you had that idea you're going to go down that path. I sort of had that idea. I didn't know how I was going to do it. didn't know anybody, but I sort of knew I wanted to do it. And seeing The Proposition in Boston was a big thing for me. It was like, I think I want to do, you know, I think I can do improv. And at the time, it was, you know, SCTV and Saturday Night Live. All those shows, you know, were, were really hot. And that was sort of the dream. So um, then when I got out of college, I moved to New York for a year. I didn't do much of anything. There wasn't, other than stand-up, there was no real comedy scene in New York. Now, what year is this? This is 1979. Okay, so yeah, because the boom started later. So I mean, even just the improv and all that. So Boston College back then, that was before Flutie, right? Yeah, before was, Flutie, yeah. It was, uh, I caught, which was a gr- another great thing. I caught that Boston College is now ridiculous. It's so hard to get into. It's such a good school. Uh, when I went there, we still had a lot of commuters. Like we had guys from Southie, you know, who said wicked pissa and all that stuff. So it was really uh, an experience. It was a great experience for me being, you know, exposed to that Boston Irish right. Catholic element. Well, it's funny because Bob, they I think Boston College and Notre Dame are just two of the all total Catholic school universities left. I believe, like in Division One, uh, Georgetown in basketball. There are a few in basketball, but in football, football, yes, yeah. It's because I heard that. It's funny because Boston College years uh, later. Uh, a guy I went to my high school who was probably seven, eight years younger than me, uh, Glenn Foley. Oh, sure. Quarterback. He went oh, to yeah. Cherry Hill East. And when we I went, didn't know that. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, my, my buddy, my buddy's, my buddy Rich Pappas, his brother, played like Little League with this guy. And this, and uh, you would sit there and watch this kid play when he was like in Little League. Right. And just sit there and the guy would pitch and strike everyone out. Right. And hit home runs. And in football, it was just amazing how good the kid was. Right. So so you go to New York, so you go to New York to do the... Uh, I go to New York, I get a job tending bar, and I'm not doing much of anything. Did you did you know what street, street you wanted to go, or you just said, I'm just going to chill did, for a while? I did, but my brother was there, and he sort of had a career, not really. We were both bartenders. He was partners with Nathan Lane at the time. Okay. Uh, they had a comedy team. They were really good, but I knew I needed to get out on my own, and I always had the dream of going to Los Angeles. So what I did was, uh, we got time, right, to tell this story? Oh, yeah, I have an, we have an hour. Okay. I, I, love, so I love this kind of stuff. What I did was I had done a play in Boston called Moon Children, uh, which was written by a guy named Michael Weller. Well, it turns out one of my teachers at BC, one of the characters in the play was based on this teacher of mine. 
<clears throat> so he introduced me to Michael Weller, who I said, you know, I think this could be a TV series. It's about a bunch of college kids who lived off campus during the 60s. And at the time, Happy Days was really big. I thought, well, Happy Days is the 50s. Why not do the 60s? So I put together a treatment. I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. And I send it to a bunch of people in Hollywood. Now, one of whom was Grant Tinker, who at the time was married to Mary Tyler Moore and ran MTM Studios, which was, you know, Bob Newhart show, Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, yeah, the, the, the best. I the think. best. He and Norman Lear are like the two, you know, the two big comedy guys in town. And I sent it to both of them. I immediately hear back from Norman Lear, like, you know, we don't take submissions. But weirdly, I get a call. Now, the name doesn't mean anything at the time. I, that Grant Tinker wants me to read for a TV series. I sent this funny letter, a cover letter, and so I said, great. Well, it turns out the guy who called me was Gwyneth Paltrow's father, Bruce Paltrow. Okay. And I go up and read for his TV pilot, which went on to become St. Elsewhere. At the time, it was called ER. So oh, I, that's funny. It was called ER, and then yeah. years later, okay. So I read for it, and he said, you know, you're, you're good. You, you should move to L.A. And I said, I just got, I got a great bartending job. I had just got an apartment for a few months. It was, you know, I was just, which is a hard thing to do in New York. And I just said, I don't know. And then a week later, Grant Tinker calls. So at the time, this is like God calling. And I just thought to myself, the hell with it. I got, I got to go. I got to right. do this. I got to, I got to move to LA. I have cut to, I move out. I don't know anybody. Had you been to L.A. before? Never. Okay. So it's, it's Never. It's, okay, Bought so. a car. You'll appreciate this. Bought a car in Doylestown to drive out. I got as far as New Hope, which is about seven miles, <laughs> and the car broke down. So I said to myself, ah, I better fly out there. So I flew out. Didn't know anybody. I knew one guy who was a cocaine dealer. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but I'll tell it, too, as long as we have time. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of funny. So uh, I move out to L.A., and I get a job uh, waiting tables at the Ginger Man, which was like the hot restaurant in Beverly Hills at the time. And somehow I read about the Groundlings. I'm reading in L.A. Weekly, and I think to myself, well, this ties into the Coke dealer story. Um, so I'm reading about it, and I say, this is for me, the Groundlings. This is what I want to do. So I reserve a ticket for Saturday night's show. So now the Coke dealer, the only guy I know, in L.A. is the Coke dealer. He said, hey, you want to go to a... And I don't do cocaine. I never... It was never my thing. So uh, he said, you want to go to a party Saturday night? I said, well, I'm going to this show called The Groundlings. He said, we'll come by afterwards. Okay, great. So I go to The Groundlings, and it is a religious experience. I I, I really do compare it to a religious experience. Okay. Like, I'm blown away. You're just loving what you see. You're like, this I'm is, this is what, what I, I need to this do. This is what I need to do. These people are phenomenal. Phil Hartman, Paul Rubens, Edie McClurg... I'm sort of at the tail end of the like golden age of the Groundlings. And I go to the party afterwards, and who's there but Phil Hartman? And I meet him, and I say, you know, I'd love to see the show. And, and he said, well, you should take a class. Yeah, I said, what are classes? He said, oh, we have classes there. Gives me the number to call. On Monday, I signed up for the Groundlings, and that's sort of what got my start, was once I took class there, my life really changed, and I made the Groundlings my home. And then eventually just got jobs. Like I see someone like, you know, it's, it's so funny because I love looking at IMDb because I always yeah. do it. And, and you see like Lou Grant yeah. and Trapper John yeah. and Quincy. 
and days of our lives. Yeah. And they're, it's funny thing is because you you know your career has been so much comedy, but they're in the and coming from Groundlings, these jobs were all dramas. They were just anything. Okay. Any job I could possibly get, uh, I would get. And I had a look that you know it's a weird thing. Now in casting, everything is young. Everything is like my son is twenty four. If he were an actor, they'd be all over him. Okay. When I moved out here, there were no parts for 24-year-olds. There was, you know, happy days, and that's really it. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of work for bad guys. You know, you'd see villains all over town. You know, the guy, Hawaii Five-0 this week, and Quincy, whatever show it was. Jake and the Fat Man. You'd see the guys. So, so like, a lanky, waspy guy from the east coast that part you know it didn't work right. now that's i'd kill it well it's funny you told me that it's, uh you know ken lerner yeah sure well he had said when he came out he was jewish but he was yeah. getting cast for the role because there's no italians and they said oh you look you know you look italian he was one of the malachis in yes. happy days and he said it's so funny though but then finally the italians caught on and said hey we're going out there you know the jewish guys getting on our roles <laughs> it's just weird how the, the the trends change yes yeah, so anyway, that's sort of how I got out here and got started and, uh, you know, had a career. Now, were you going out for commercials and stuff, too? or just Doing commercials. Never did well on that. Only picked up a few. Commercial agents liked me, and they assumed I would work, and I never cracked that thing, which may not be a bad thing because you do get, you know, niched into right. you're a commercial guy. And I really, you know, the Saturday Night Live thing was really my dream and i got very very close there and that's uh it didn't happen no how did that come about it came about because um john lovitz who was a good friend is a good friend and was cast in in saturday night live and if you remember that year which i think was 86 it was lauren michael's first year back he had sort of left the show now he was back and he had dennis miller on and and john and and joan kuzak it was a crazy year Robert Downey and Anthony yeah. Michael Hall. It was, yeah, I remember that. It was. So uh, he was desperate for people. So John said to him, and John was the only thing that was working at the time. Do you remember the liar character? Oh, yeah. yeah. So he said, go to the Groundlings, go see Phil Hartman, Tim Stack, and Lynn Stewart. So uh, Lorne Michaels came. Phil could not be there that weekend. And I had a kick-ass night. I just kicked ass. And what were some of the characters you would do? Well, my famous character at the Groundling, my famous, my, my most noted character, was this idiot Frank Sinatra impersonator named Guy Simone. Now, how'd you come up with that character? Was it based on someone I back in Doyle? I saw a guy, no. I, well, <laughs> partly, there was a guy in Southampton, Pennsylvania, in Lower Bucks County. I know it. Well, if you remember, in South Philadelphia, there was a famous night call, club called Palumbo. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I always love, my comedy tends to be third-rate people who dream of being second-rate. Okay. <laughs> like the nightstand guy, Dick Dietrich, you know, he he, he always bragged about owning 3 a.m. in the morning, you know? He, he's really a second-rate guy. <laughs> so there was a nightclub in Lower Bucks County called, it wasn't Palumbo's, it was called Ernie Palumbo's. <laughs> and Ernie, you know, served spaghetti, and he would walk up and down the aisles with a guy on accordion behind him, and a Mr. Microphone. And he would sing Sinatra songs. You know, and serve bad right. chicken farmers. Well, that's funny. It reminds me of when my, my brother got married. He had that cameraman like that. Like this guy was like, he wanted to be like an old, he has a short Italian guy. And he was getting drunk and trying to hit on a whim. And it was like the same kind of like that, just that 
buffoonish character, yes. you know? Love it. So, so, you're so then I see a guy, a friend of mine takes me to see this guy who, that's his living. He makes a, he clothes, he, he makes a living doing Frank Sinatra. But he has the whole persona. Like, he acts like he's Sinatra. And we said to him, uh, we said, hey, his name was Nick. I can't remember his last name. He said, uh, Nick, buy a drink? And he went like, yeah, like nobody's ever done that before. <laughs> so I just sort of latched into that as this, and that became my go-to character at the Groundlings. I got uh, Chris Albrecht at the time, who was running HBO, gave me a Cinemax special with the character, and um, and then we got a CBS pilot out of it that went nowhere. But I had a good little run with that character. In fact, that's the, and that script, I wrote a movie script for the character, and that script is what got me to Howard Stern. Okay, what well, with the when with the SNL though, you did that? Did you do that character night when you killed it? Did the character that night? Did a few other characters too? Did a character based on my mother? My mother had a radio show in Doylestown, and I did this radio. It was I always say if you want if you're a, if you're straight and you want to play gay, just do impression of your mother. Okay. And so my mother talked as if every word was a novel unto itself, and she would add syllables to words that weren't there. <laughs> uh, she pronounced the capital of Georgia, Atlanta. Okay. There's no extra T in, the, in Atlanta, Mom. <laughs> so, so you get you have a great audition. <clears throat> I have a great audition. Lorne Michaels invites me to the Beverly Hills Hotel the next day. I want you on the show. I'm she must running. Be ecstatic. I'm running to the car. And how I'm long so have you been in LA? How long have you been involved in the Grand This Wings? is '86. I came to LA in '79. See, but you would, but still, I mean, it's still a quick, pretty, you know, seven years. Okay. So, uh, not exactly a kid. You know, Lovitz got in really quick. He, he scored really quick. Uh, he'd only been in the Groundlings for like a month and got the gig. Um, so, uh, and I got in the Groundlings, I think, in 1980. I signed up for class in 79. But, um, yeah, and then I went, and it, then it became a bad experience. I, I, which I tell people, you know, the few times I get to talk to colleges is there was a writer on the show and I wrote a sketch, and I thought it was funny. It, what happened was Lorne Michaels said, <clears throat> why don't you come back for the last three weeks of the, se- of the season? You'll learn how it all operates. We'll pay you as a writer, and then you'll be ready to go in September. Was, Great. So they fly me back first class. They put me up in a hotel, three weeks, and per diem, and all this stuff. And here's the mistake I made. The mistake I made was I thought I was funnier than everybody else. Okay. And the other thing that I didn't know was Lorne Michaels, who I think at the time liked to play games with people, kept pimping me like I got my new star, which he, you know, apparently he liked to like, you know, th- mix it up. So I don't know that. So people are not happy to see me there. So I write this sketch. I wrote a few sketches the first week and I write a sketch and a writer there who was trying to get, it's all very, very political there. And... A writer was trying to get, like, I want to be John Lovitz's guy. And he sort of was jealous of my relationship with John. And he told me to take this one joke out. And I thought to myself, I don't know. It's funny. This thing right. makes me laugh. Why not leave the joke in? So I left the joke in. Cut to the table read. Now, when they do readings at Saturday Night Live on Wednesdays, they put a pile of sketches. I'm telling you, it's almost a foot high. And they just, the cast reads, sorry, just reads um, sketch after sketch after sketch. So, sorry. That's um, right. I hit the mic. Um, so, but the new people get their sketches on the bottom. 
So by the time they get to you, three hours have passed. And people are exhausted. They want to go to the bathroom. And they don't want to laugh anymore. So my sketch goes on the bottom. Not only, they don't want me to score to begin with. Now it's on the bottom and it dies. And the joke that the guy told me to take out just lays there. Cut to, now it's summertime. I'm trying to get on the show. Hartman has been casting the show. He's trying to get me on the show. And finally, Phil calls me and he said, did you write some joke last year? It was about a girl's period was the joke. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, did so-and-so tell you to take that joke out? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, well, he's telling Lauren that you're problematic and we don't want you on the show. And that was it. So my, my, what I tell younger people is sometimes, especially in the beginning, it's more important to get along with people than it is to score. Right, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Plus, I'm, yeah, it's, it's crazy like that. So then now do you come back to L.A.? I came back to L.A. and uh, got the Cinemax thing, you know, with, uh, with uh, Chris Albrecht and did stuff and just— well, You were on yeah. Punky Brewster. I <laughs> did six episodes of Punky Brewster. What was that like? Was that, I mean, because that, that was after this, this? I think it was, yes. Okay, so how'd that come about? I mean, just because Punky Brewster was just. I think I just read for it. Uh, Dave Duclon, who I went on to work for as a writer, ran the show and he liked me. I might have worked for him on something else. We also did a, a mini series. I did, well, Winds of War. Yeah. Well, so well, how that, that? Was one, that was my second job. That I got because uh, during summers I tended bar out in East Hampton. And a guy I had met out there was in the, uh, he was a music, he scored, he, his job was to score the uh, miniseries. And somehow, you know, when I moved here, I would call anybody. I called, if you were the cousin of somebody I met in a parking lot who knew somebody who worked in a parking lot that parked so-and-so's car, I would call that person. <laughs> I was relentless. I don't know how else to describe it. I was relentless. I had nothing else going on in my life. No girlfriend, no nothing. I had the groundlings, and I was relentless. And so that was one of those things where I just stayed on him. He got me an audition with Reuben Cannon, who was the casting director. And there was a small part of Robert Mitchum's assistant, like a yeoman. Yeoman Ryan was my character. Right. And I think it was maybe two or three lines, but I got the part. And I worked. It was, you know, multiple episodes. I got paid for it. And I got to work with Robert Mitchum, which was oh, fantastic. Amazing. He told right. me, for whatever reason, he started opening because I knew a lot of old movies because my dad watched so many old movies. I knew about you know films like Out of the Past, and 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 for him to see a kid that knew movies like that, uh, he just started talking and he's telling me about sleeping with Joan Crawford and and getting into fights and who the toughest guy in Hollywood was. You know, just great classic, stuff. Classic, classic stuff. So it was a great experience. So, okay, so now you said you, you, Cinemax does the uh, the character. Yeah. You have a special. Yeah. And they, that, that's what ended up Howard Stern noticing you? or No. Then I wrote, I decided to write, I had it in me, and it was right, my wife was pregnant, I always wanted to write this movie, and I said, you know, i got to make a living after this. I'm going to write this feature really quick, because it was sort of the love of my life, this character. Second love of my life, next to my wife. And I write the script. So what was the character's name? Guy D. Simone. Okay. And years later, um, I am. Uh, I met Don Buckwall. I, that's another story. During college, I had bartended a party at Don Buckwald's house. A friend of mine was like a junior agent for him, 
and got me a job. You know, like 50 bucks, you bartend the Christmas party. And I met, that's when I first met Don Buckwald. And then, um, so then years later, I was at NAPTI and I'm selling nightstand. And this was year two of nightstand. And I see Don Buckwald. Now, I'm a huge Howard fan at this point, you know, because he had been on in, on in L.A. I didn't know him from back east, but uh, I'm a huge Howard fan. I see Don Buckwald. And we'd been trying to, you know, uh, nightstand was on E-Channel before Howard. And we were trying to get on Howard, and I think, I'm going to introduce myself to Don Buckwald because. So I introduce myself. I tell him I bartended the party and blah, blah, blah. And we hit it off. So at the time, I really I didn't have a good agent. And he and I started talking, and he said, well, let me read something. So I didn't really have a new feature. I hadn't written a feature by myself since. God, he said, well, I just thought, you know, this is crazy enough. Howard might like this script. So Don takes it. Again, I don't think anything of it. And then Don calls me like two weeks later, and he said, Howard just loves this script. Okay. He wants to direct it. I said, what? He said, yeah, he want, can he call you? I said, yeah, call me. So he calls me, and he's got fantastic notes on this script. Like the best notes I've ever gotten, you know, Usually get notes that are so crazy, and the, oh, yeah. and the executives think they're they're little notes, and but they notes that change everything. Yeah, I I, I <coughs> opted to screenplay when I first came out years ago. And it's like the, some of the notes you look at it and they go, "Well, we don't understand what's a short bus," and it's like it's it's oh boy the turn, and then you sit there and go, "That's just yeah." So yeah, I know how. Right. It, well, can we make it a long bus? Right. Well, then you lose the joke. Exactly. Um, so we try to sell this script with Howard as a director, and I'm telling you, this is a quirky. It's a low-budget indie film. And they went out to some studios, and the studios were just like, we're not, we're not going to make this movie. And Howard suddenly said, Tim, I can't direct it. I don't have time. I'm you know, in the middle of, I have a marriage, I have kids, and I do this show, and I just don't have time. He said, what else do you have? Do you have any other ideas? And I said, Howard, to be honest, the idea that I really want to do more than anything, and this is after Nightstand, I said, uh, a couple of guys from Nightstand and I developed this show called Son of the Beach. And he laughed, and he said, what is it? I said, it's really a simple pitch. I said, you take Baywatch, and you take David Hasselhoff out, and you put me in. That's the pitch. Now, how would you come up with that idea? Was it just you guys were talking about it one night? No, I, I had come up with the idea by myself as a feature. At the time, it was during Nightstand, and at the time... Um, they were doing all these spoof movies like Mafia the Movie and Hot Shots Part Which that's funny. I, I had pitched a script back then. It was called Goot Fellows, and it was a uh, Amish Mafia documentary. That's funny. But they said the problem was because it was like the Mafia, the Mafia bomb. Then it was all whole, you know how that works. So so that was so the spoof movies were big. Yeah, so the spoof movies are big. So um, <coughs> I write a treatment for this thing called Son of the Beach with Notch Johnson and all that. And I'm not thinking me to play the part. I was thinking, do you know that actor Chris McDonald? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking Chris McDonald. I thought he's funny and he's he kind of looks like Hasselhoff a little bit. Right, yeah, he has that. <clears throat> so I'm, uh, uh, we're, we're sitting around after Nightstand with Dave Morgison and Jim Stein and trying to come up with an idea for me. They want to do an idea like, and we watch a couple episodes of, uh, of uh, Naked Gun or what, Police Squad thinking you know what can we do and i said remember that baywatch idea i had and they said that's perfect 
I said, but I never saw me. He said, no, 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 it's perfect. You surrounded by hot girls on the beach, it's perfect. So we went to work, and we developed a pitch, and then we pitched it to Howard. And this all took a long time because this was on the phone. I said, next time you're out. Well, he didn't come out again for another six months. So while he was out, uh, we pitched it to him. And the way I pitch things is I like to act out scenes. That's how I sold Nightstand with an actress named Judy Toll. Yes. Comedian who passed away. Yeah, but from Philadelphia. Yeah, from Philadelphia. She, we, that's how we sold Nightstand was we brought her in and, we, and she and I acted out a scene. So we had met this actress named Kim Oha, Oya on uh, Nightstand. We brought her in and we acted out a scene for Son of the Beach and, and for Howard. And Howard said, I love this. I'll be back in six months. <laughs> so now we wait six months and then finally we get in a limo one day and we probably hit 12 places in a day. I was exhausted. Um, and because I did most of the pitching, Howard was like, we, you know, by the end it became routine. Howard does some bit, then I take over and pitch the show. And then uh, we sold it to FX, and that's what that's uh, how that happened. Well, with Nightstand, before you did Nightstand, as you looking at your, you know, your resume, you, you, you were doing a lot of work. I mean, you were yeah. getting a lot of work. I mean, you know, from uh, it's funny because you worked from Johnny Bago, which uh, Johnny Bago, yeah, which is a very good friend of mine, John Matt, his wife Rose Abdu was in it. Oh yes, yes, yes. Rose is she's uh, really funny. Yeah, she's John. I know me and John's a Philadelphia guy. We did comedy back in 1990. I just saw it. She was the woman in it. Yes, she yeah. was the woman. In it. Really funny. <laughs> yeah, you did Parker Lewis can't lose. Yeah, that was a great Could, job. Now, now, was that you were still writing, and you, you were? Still, I was I mean, always <laughs> writing. I was always I was like an actor writer, and then like I sold two TV movies, back like very serious TV movies. Well, how did you come up with the ideas for them? I mean, just because you write comedy and your comedy is out there, it's not as you say. It's it's not the Sun of the Beach is just funny stuff, you know, right. that kind of stuff. But right. how did that how did that come about? The one idea I had, uh, my, my brother and I are driving back from a Yankees game in Anaheim, and he's talking about going back to college. And I said, you should go. My brother was a really good high school football player who never played in college. And I said, oh, you should go play college football. So then I thought, that's an idea for a movie. And somehow I got it to Robert Conrad. I got the idea to Robert Conrad. Who at the time was a huge TV star. Knocked us off. Yeah, knocked us off. I dare off. you to knock us off. <laughs> and, oh, man, what a trip that guy is. Um, so I get it to Conrad, and Conrad says, I love it. So uh, they weren't going to let me write it, so I brought in a friend of mine who had sold a couple of TV movies, a guy who was more of a writer-actor, a guy named Larry Williams. And he and I wrote it, and we wrote the draft, and, and, and it got made. This thing called Glory Days. It was really bad. So uh, you could usually follow that with most TV movies. Right. It was really bad. Well, I remember they had one based on the Eagles. It was started Tony Danza. It was like about a garbage man who uh, kicked field goals. It was a com- comedy, but it was one of those deep beat shows. I forget it was called like the Garbage Kicking f- from Philadelphia. It's something weird. And you sit there and go, how did this get made? Right. You know, you sit there and go, we, 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 he's playing? Yeah, it's crazy. So then in, in 1985 then, that was 83, Robert Conrad, then in 85, I, I don't know, I just thought of an idea. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to sit down and write a treatment for it. And I came up with a whole pitch, and it was, it, what was it called? Shades of Grey. And it was Valerie Bertinelli when she was a huge right, right. TV star. <laughs> and it was, it was about a young district attorney who discovers that her father was a dirty cop. 
anyway. It was it's like just bad. great. Really it's, bad. Uh, the Parker Lewis, you were in there for three seasons. Yeah, I did all three years of that. And that was a good show. That, that was, was a great that was a, show. You know, it was because that was I mean it was in ninety to ninety three, so yeah, I graduated college in eighty six. Yeah. So it was, we're still in that age, you know. I mean, so did, did you go through a long audition process for that? Or that one? Uh, no, a very short audition process. Somebody else was cast in the pilot. I forget the actor's name. He's a very good actor and very funny. He in in the Seinfeld. Do you remember the Seinfeld where the guy eats spaghetti in the hospital bed? Yeah, a, yeah. That guy was the original father. Okay, and somehow they didn't like him. And w- the uh, co-executive producer on the show is a guy named Tom Straw, who I had gone to college with his wife and just become friendly with him. And he said, you know, they would come to the Groundlings and whatnot. Um, he said, I think I, th- I want you to read for this part. And I thought I was a little bit young for the part because I, I don't. I think I was like thirty-eight at the time or something. And he said, no, no, I want you to read for the part. So I went in and read for it, and Clyde Phillips was the executive producer. And because I had plenty of network, you know, I'd done some series and the network knew me, I got the part. So, and they were up against it. Like, it was like it had to shoot in two days. So, uh, anyway, it turned out to be a great job. It's what got me to move to Santa Barbara because I said to my wife, we had my daughter had just been she was young and my son was just born and i said to my wife it's never going to be this lucrative and this easy at the same time cuz i would work 2 days a week and i got paid you know series money now did it shoot in santa barbara no okay but i just said it's never going to be like this and at the time too it was not a hit but it looked like it was going to go longer than 3 years they started moving with it, and they changed it. They always do that, and it's just like it they ma- should have put. You know where it should have gone. If you remember at the time, The Simpsons was on eight o'clock on Thursday. Yes, it should have followed The Simpsons because it, in essence, was a live-action cartoon. That show, you know, if you remember sound effects and crazy fantasy right. shots, and it should have followed that. That said, it had a good little run. It was on Sunday nights, which was kind of a good night. You had. Um, in Living Color and Married with Children and Us, and it was a good night on Fox. So we talked about Nice Den earlier. How did that all come about? Because I asked you off air if it was based on Richard Bay, which yeah. it wasn't. Which, if people, if you don't know, there was a guy in Richard Bay in Philly that needed Richard Bay show, and he was just, oh, he was just, it was a cartoon. He was almost like a cartoon. Richard Bay. Yes. He like, was the lowest of, like, like you start off with Phil Donahue. Well, you, you know, it all changed in that world when Phil put on a dress. Do you remember when Phil put yes. on a dress? Yeah. <laughs> That's when suddenly it all changed. Except the one person who never went down that road was Oprah. But then everybody just sort of piled on. And there were you these. Morton Downey Jr. Morton Downey Jr. You had uh, Maury. You had. Uh, Springer. Springer. Uh, the woman in Chicago. Um, Jenny Jones. Jenny Jones. You had all. And then the year we sold Nightstand, you had. Danny Bonaducci, Tempest, Bledsoe. You had nothing but daytime talk. So when we came along with now, was Nice this, Dan... Was this an idea you had earlier in your... No, that idea came... Um, two guys I had worked for who hired me to do Guy De Simone for an industrial film. They'd seen me at the Groundlings, but they'd also... I used to do Phil Donahue at the Groundlings, and they saw me do Donahue, and they said, what about an idea that spoofs you know, all these shows? And if you remember, Fernwood Tonight had had a very good run sort of spoofing the Mike Douglas show, the variety format. So I thought, that's a really good idea. I don't know if I can sell it. And he said, well, don't worry. Our agent is going to sell this. This is Paula Bade and Peter Keiko. So 
we go out and we start pitching this show, and it's not going anywhere. And and the agent, to his credit, this guy Jay Feldman, was relentless. He just would not give up on this show. Most agents will give you three meetings, right, and then you're done. So, but this guy kept making meetings, kept making meetings, and people always responded to the pitch. But it was like, it's so different. I don't know how you sell it. I don't know how you sell it. So what happened then was we decide we changed the pitch. We brought in Judy Toll, and we pitched again, and people were like, "This is so funny. I just don't know how to sell it." Then we get a meeting with a guy named Larry Little. Now Larry Little was just starting a company called Big Ticket Television, which was an offshoot of Spelling. He had run Spelling Television, and now the people at Blockbuster gave him all this money to start his own company. Blockbuster owned Spelling at the time. And he sees this, and he said, i got to have it. i got to have the show. And that's the kind of guy he is. He's very impulsive. And, and we literally, and we pitched it. We had no furniture in the pitch. They, had ju- they hadn't even moved furniture into this office. We're standing up in a circle <laughs> pitching the show. So he said, so then what he did was he got the distribution company, which was owned by Spelling called World Vision, a guy named John Ryan, to come out. This is, this is when I became a good salesman. So somehow I hear that we do the pitch, and John Ryan, I can see it's like, how are we going to sell this show? We can't sell this show. And I hear that John Ryan had played football at the University of Wisconsin. Well, one of my babysitters, and I know he's older than me, one of my babysitters when I was a kid was this guy named Bud Dyer, who had played football at the University of Wisconsin. So while they're all talking, I see John Ryan. He goes over to glass, get a glass of water, and I go over to him, and I said, uh, Hey, John, I, I heard you played football at Wisconsin. By any chance, did you know a guy named Bud Dyer at all? His eyes, like, light up. How the hell do you know him? He was my babysitter, blah, blah, blah. So now I've won over John Ryan. But have we won over the company and this whole thing? But from that point, but Larry Little will not give up. And he said, I want to spend the money. I'm going to put up the, my own money from my budget. Let's do it. From the pitch to the floor at NAPTI, the second week in January was six weeks. We wrote, shot, edited, posted, and sold Nightstand within six weeks. Wow. Now, Crazy now, story. And now you, you do a lot of the writing for that. You were just, Yeah, 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 yeah. Was, Paul and Peter and I got together, and then we started bringing in people. Uh, Larry Little suggested Jim Stein who had worked on Fernwood tonight, which was a great choice. I brought in this guy, Dave Morgison. Some other people were brought in. Uh, Judy Toll was brought in. And uh, and we got the thing written. Now, you write a lot, too, also. Now, did you That's wrote, what I do now. You wrote, on, you wrote on Family Matters? I wrote on Family I see, Matters. I see on your IMDb. I'm like, it's. I just said, wow, because that's just, I mean, it's so different because... From nightstand, it's and you know it's just a different feel than the family matters. It's a totally different. You're world. going from like you guys or three guys who had this idea, crazy how it happened, how you knew Bud Dyer and all this stuff, right? And then you go to Family Matters, which is a, a family. I mean, how yes. did you, how did the, was that hard that for you was, to write for that? No, uh, because writing on those shows is it's really done in group, and it becomes more less about your writing skill. And more about your ability to pitch jokes. Uh, you know, the lesson I learned on Saturday Night Live, more important to get along. Even more important in a writer's room. Because you're locked in a room with these people and it's really important to get along. And so I sort of learned the lesson on Saturday Night Live and applied it. And 
I would just pitch jokes. I, you know, pitch jokes and pitch story ideas, and sometimes they get in, sometimes they don't. But I never took it personally when they didn't, and and I still don't. Um, you know, I write on Raising Hope now, and same thing. I just, you know. Well, with Son of a Beach, you wrote too. Yes. Now, what is it like to be sitting there writing? And being the star, it's great. Is it's it just much easier? I mean, do you sit there? Do some other writers sit there and go, or the other cast think, "Oh, he's writing these lines. He's putting more effort into his character than mine." Did, you, did that ever come apart? Come up? No, no, the, the no, because first of all, I was sort of in charge, so the room has to laugh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> funny how that works. Um, but no, I think because I had such a grasp on both Dick Dietrich and Notch Johnson uh, that. I would just sort of pitch jokes that were coming from the character. I think it's the improv background that sort of just takes over in the moment. So that's why, you know, people like Amy Poehler and um, Tina Fey, you know, I think it's not that hard to be in the writer's room if you're pitching jokes for your character. Okay. And if you're good, which I think those two people I mentioned are very good, right? they also appreciate a good joke when it's pitched by somebody else. And, and that's where it gets into being a good writer, like, and trusting people where they say, you know, if Dave and Jim say, you know, I really think you want to do it this way, I trust them enough to say, okay. Now, Son of a Beach was on the very beginning of FX, right? Yes. Because I remember I was writing for a website. And uh, we used to do, uh, it was a cost per click, and I'd write jokes and questions with this thing. But I remember one of our people was FX Network, and I remember it was one of the shows because we had to write, you know, to get drive traffic to their site. Um, what was that like being like, I mean, one of the first shows in a new. It was great thing. because they spent a fortune to promote it. It was great, and then it was bad because we sort of got spoiled because we had Howard Stern behind us, too, uh, which was huge. And I mean, you have no idea how huge that is until you walk into a press meeting with Howard Stern. I mean, it's just crazy. It's great, like cameras. And, and I never saw anything like it, watching him handle those cameras and the reporters. I just never saw anything like it. Just a pro, just... Beyond. Uh, you know, and then the funny thing about him is, you know, he turns around off camera and he's he's Long Island Jewish Howard. You yeah. Know, he's, he's this nebbishy guy. He's a really good guy. But he's he's kind of shy and 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 you know uh, apprehensive and insecure. And then the minute they say go, he's it's fantastic to watch. So now, how was people's reaction when they met you when you're in Son of a Beach? Because it was such a great character. I mean, did people just sit there and be like, "Hey, you, did, they, did people start recognizing you?" Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. It just, both of those shows, Nice Stand and Son of a Beach, don't have what you call the mainstream audience. No. So you must have had some crazy people coming up to you at times. Or you just, get a lot of crazy people, especially with Howard. You know, you get a lot of like weird Howard people coming up to you and, and people would come see filming and they were crazy Howard fans. Um, the nice thing about being recognized for those shows is Generally, the people are really fans. They're like hardcore. We love your show. God, you know, we just love the show. Um, as opposed to, you know, I'm making up a name, Drew Carey. We know who Drew Carey is. You may not watch the show, but you know it's Drew Carey. And it's like, hi, Drew. Hi, you know. Um, you know, the fans were hardcore. They were they were true fans. So I mean, that was always rewarding. And I still get it. Yesterday... Uh, I'm on the set of our show, Raising Hope, 
And the guy who played Uncle Jack on Breaking Bad, Michael Bowen. I don't know if you know Breaking Bad. I watched sure. Michael. I watched it, yeah. Uncle yeah. The, the white supremacist guy. You know, okay. the bad guy at the yeah. end. He's on our show playing this bounty hunter character. Very funny. Couldn't be a nicer guy. He sees me. Now, I'm working up the courage to go over to him and say, can I get a picture? Because <laughs> it's Uncle Jack. It's right. like, oh, <laughs> man, how cool is that? And he said to me, hey, you, the lifeguard. You're funny, and I'm, you know, so we hit it off right away. Did you ever get any weird things happen to you, though, just like from weird fan experiences? Yeah, you do. You, you, you get that. You get some crazy people every once in a while, and people yell at you, but not very rarely with me. It's not like Howard, you know, where right. you walk down a street with Howard, and, you know, most people are like, Howard, 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 and then you'll get, you know, like, you disgusting devil, you know, that kind of stuff. Um You'll get those people too. So now, after Son of a Beach ends, do you yes. sit there and now was it? How did it end? Did they <clears> say <throat> the ratings weren't good, or was it just a fallout with the network? Or this is what I was saying it was really great in the beginning. What happened was uh, a guy named Jeremiah Bosgang was the executive, and he bought the show and got his boss Peter Lagori to sign off on it. And Peter very wisely could see the Howard Stern publicity machine getting behind this and he ordered six episodes and it took off that show blew up in the beginning it was when Stern was so hot and Stern was Baywatch so hot. was hot it was just a, something different it was a new network and it was it was cutting edge it was all new and we came out of the gates like I mean huge number right out of the gates and settled into a really good number but then this is what happens in cable because the orders are so small you know they're not like on a network show you do 22 you can really build up an audience. On a cable show, they do, like, we did six. Right. Then we were off the air for f- six months. Then we did seven episodes. Then we're off the air again for six months. Then we do 15 episodes. We go through them. And then what finally killed us was a new guy came in, Kevin Riley, who now runs Fox, came in. He did not like the show. He wanted his own brand. That's a, it, that, it's just television. That's how it works. He wanted his own show. He got the shield. He sort of pulled that one out you know, at the, right at the end of his tenure. That became a huge hit. And he sort of used that to delay us for an entire year. So by the time we're coming back now, it's been a year since we've been on the air. Right. We're not madmen. You know, we're not uh, Breaking Bad where you can do that, or The Sopranos where you can do that. We're Son of the Beach. We're a little, funny, spoofy cable show on FX. So that's what really killed us. We never really regained the momentum. In hindsight, I think they were stupid because that show could have easily, you know, Reno 911 went on to syndicate. Uh, Sunny in Philadelphia went on to syndicate. We could have easily been in that mold and made 100 episodes, and they would have made some money back. What are you going to do? So that got canceled, and you're doing some acting. But then, then uh, my name is Earl comes along. Now, yes. Now, how? Now, did you go on that as a writer in the beginning? Yeah, or Greg as an Garcia. Actor or Greg Garcia is an old friend who I met on my first staff writing job. You know what's funny? I, I looked him up today because I saw someone. I was reading some stuff about you and all, 
when it said Camden County, I thought immediately I thought South Jersey, but it turns out Greg Garcia is from uh, Frostburg, Maryland, or whatever. Yeah, and, and Camden is for Camden Yards. Okay, I didn't know. Okay, and, named, I saw, and named his son Camden. His okay, I thought Camden. Camden County, New Jersey. That's that's where yes. I grew up. The right. WIP used to say the following schools: Camden County, five fifty one. So okay, so you met Greg when? I met Greg. This goes back to Punky Brewster. See, it, it all sort of <clears throat> get along with people, and it all sort of lines up. And Dave Duclon had hired me as an actor on Punky Brewster. Then, uh, at the time, this is now, oh man, 95, 94, uh, Par- Parker Lewis ends, a friend of mine, Barry Finero, big writer, said, uh, we want you for this pilot at, uh, at ABC. I said, great, sounds good. So then he runs the name by the network at NBC. <clears throat> and the network said, eh, now, been there, done that, we're not interested. Barry comes to me and he said, look, for whatever it's worth, they're saying you're sort of old news. I'm just telling you as your friend, I don't know what you can do about it. Tell your agent, whatever. So I say to myself, I got two kids. You know, I can write sitcoms. I quickly write a spec Seinfeld. And because Dave Duclon remembered me from Punky Brewster, I got it to Dave Duclon. He said, this is fantastic. I really love this. How about a staff job on my new show? which was called On Our Own. Great. I'll take anything. And I, it was a big career change because I you know, was making pretty good money on Parker Lewis. Now I'm making very little money as a staff writer. You know, most staff writers are 24 years old. Right. I was 39 years old. But on that job, I meet Greg Garcia. He was a staff writer. And he was 24 and I was 39, but we just became very good friends and we hit it off with another guy, Ralph Green, who we still work with. And then what happened was um, during Earl, when we always stayed friends, like I did some nightstand and Greg would come to the tapings. And Greg's career was really taking off. Well, you did an episode of Seinfeld, too. I did do an episode now, of Seinfeld. Now, did that come about because you are given the I had script, read for or? it. No. Okay. I had read for that show like seven times. And they finally cast me in that part. Okay. They kept bringing me back. And Mark Hirschfeld, who was the casting director, said, I said, Mark, what am I doing? It's like this. He just, it's how they work. Trust me. At some point, one of these will work, and he was right. Um, so Garcia then said to me, you want to see my new pilot? I think you'll really like it. So I said, yeah, I'd love to see it. And I watched the pilot on My Name is Earl, and I'm blown away. It's, it was just so different and so unique and great, and Jason Lee was great. And I said to Greg, look, if you have any spots on this show, he said, done, you know. How many days you want? You want three, four, whatever. And I thought at the time I still had a bunch of projects going, and I said uh, I better do three. And he said, "Great." So I went to work on Earl, and I had so much fun. Um, so you were three days as a writer. Three days as a writer, and the next year I went to four days. And again, I had so much fun that I said, "What am I doing? I don't care." But weirdly, at the same time, Greg put me in episodes of of My Name Is Earl. Like the third episode up, he came to me and he said, he said, uh, look, we need like a grade B celebrity for this beauty pageant. You know, like, you know, uh, whoever it is, the right. guy who played Matt Houston, that right. kind of guy. <laughs> Lee Helmsley. <laughs> yeah. But would you be interested? And I said, I said, yeah, I'd be really interested. I said two things. It was a little girl's beauty pageant. And I said, I want to play me. Because it was going to play me, Tim Stack. I want to play me as a drunk and a pedophile. 
so that's what we did. And then uh, one thing led to another. I ended up doing like 22 episodes as an actor on the show as well as writing the whole time. And then Raising Hope came along and I moved on to Raising Hope as a writer. And Well, and no, he, that's his show too. Yes. Now, uh, was it just an easy transition to when, when My Name is a Girl got canceled? Did Greg just take his whole staff with him? A or? lot of them. Yeah, and then some new people came into the fold and other people left. You know, they went on to other jobs and... Now, what's it like for you? And I've talked to people who, you know, because you have the background in acting and you know, sketch. What's it like in the writer's room? Because a lot of times I know stand-ups who sit there and they go, or they go in the writer's room and they just, they, 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 they can't take it. Just, yeah. They said it's too, not rigid. It's because it's not rigid. It's, it's like a job job. Does that, does that bother you? Or do you still feel creative when you're in the writer's room? No, I do feel creative. I think, uh, yes. Yeah. Certain more times than other. You know, breaking, coming up with stories is hard. You know, it's just that's it's called breaking stories, and it's it's the reason it's called breaking because it's, right. it's really really hard. Um, that part I'm guessing the stand-ups would not have fun with, where the rewrite process or the actual writing process, like some shows are different. Like Raising Hope this year, we started what's called gang writing the episodes, where seven people might go in a room and somebody's in charge. You know, there's one person left in charge of the room, but a script is written. And then that script gets turned over to the executive producer who has his or her notes, or in this case his, and it gets kicked back, and then it becomes a script. But, a, a, you know, an outline is divvied up, and that's called gang writing. Other shows, writers will go off by themselves. They'll take a week, and they'll go off and write a draft by themselves, and then come back in, and then that's rewritten. The thing that bothers people the most in the beginning of the sitcom writing business is getting rewritten because you'll go off and you'll spend a week and you'll come up with jokes that are very very good and you know those jokes will work but if Greg Garcia or whoever is in charge isn't as turned on by that joke now you know it's gonna work but if that person's in charge isn't doesn't know it's gonna get rewritten and sometimes stories get completely rewritten and that's where you can't take it personally. Now, do you find yourself more as a joke guy or an idea guy when it comes to the scripts? Because, I mean, you've had these shows. More of a up. joke and character guy and kind of a bit guy. Like, what if we did it this way? For example, last year we did an episode uh, on Raising Hope where the father character uh, discovers he's Jewish or he, he thinks he's Jewish. And his parents come to him and say, we want you to get bar mitzvah. We find out it's this whole scam that the parents are working. But he doesn't know anybody who's Jewish, so he's going to go to the deli. And I say, I pitch, what if we get to the deli and it becomes a musical? Like, you know, suddenly the guy behind the counter is talking and he's like, Tevia, and it becomes, you know, people are dancing the whore and it... And the room sort of like one guy latches onto it and everybody else is like, that's never going to work. That's never going to work. I'm so jazzed about this idea. Greg is down on the set. I email Greg. And I say, uh, what do you think of it? I said, Greg, I'm telling you. Greg not only latches onto it, he said, I want the corned beef sandwiches singing. Like, I want this to be crazy. Like, like the world of Judaism is just like a whole other planet. Right, right. You know? Uh, <laughs> And so that's what we did, and it became a musical episode. There were three numbers in it. It was really fun to do, 
But doing stuff like that, I also think I do well, which is to pitch bits. Okay. Not just jokes, but like whole bits. Like what if the character is acting blind in addition to, you know, getting a medical exam? Now, do you appear on Raising Hope as an actor ever? No. Okay. Do you, Are you really, are you still wanted to act or do you mostly want to No, the last writing? thing I did, well, the Jay Leno thing, you know, the stuff I do for Leno is, uh, did, now that that's done. Right. Um, that was sort of my last performing. That, and that came out of nowhere. That Jay Leno said, uh, apparently he told somebody, yeah, get the guy from that show. And he was talking about Nightstand. And it took him a few days to figure out what show Jay was talking about because <laughs> nobody could remember the name of it. And finally, a guy from Philly, Dave Rogalski, a uh, great guy, Cardinal Doherty graduate, um, realized who I was. And he called me and he said, is that of any interest to you? And I said, and this is when I was on three days a week on Earl, so I could do it. And I said, absolutely, I think I could do that. And we did one, and it worked, and we ended up doing uh, close to 50. So now you're just concentrating mostly on the writing? Yeah, yeah, now I'm just writing. Now are you creating any new shows in your mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a show with Jim and Dave. We're trying to do a couple of shows with Jim Stein and Dave Morgison, uh, and then a couple of other shows of my own. And I recently just sold a TV movie. I'm back in that game. Drama? A drama from a newspaper article I read. I did this one accidentally. I sent this article to a friend of mine who produces Lifetime movies as a favor. And then he said to me, do you want to do it with me? I said, sure. And we ended up, they ended up hiring Bill Macy, the actor, and his partner. He's got a writing partner. And they did a tremendous job on this outline that they're now about to hand in the script. I think it's going to get made. That's so, crazy. Yeah. It's just so weird. That, you know, you're doing the comedy and this, and yeah. then all of a sudden you go to the... Uh, to the the drama, just right. off off a just off a whim, just like off hey, a newspaper. I was doing a friend a favor. Now, are you? Uh, how do you come up with your ideas? We have a few minutes left. Look, when you come up for new ideas for series, does it just? It just sort pops of something pops in your head. It's just sometimes I'll go and what my process is. I'll go and I'll take a pad somewhere where there's no internet um, and no phone, and I'll go and I'll sit there. But that's once I have the idea and I sort of beat it out. I just found a book. I happened to be in a bookstore. I picked up a book. So I'm looking in. I just read the first chapter, and I said, this is hilarious, this book. So I'm looking into optioning that. I've never done that before. That's kind of exciting. A guy showed me a video about something else, and I just thought, and I found a book that's in the same, about the same event. So I'm looking into that now. That The, the Lifetime thing got me jazzed, like, I wouldn't mind doing this. You know, if I could get a three or four day a week writing job and then do this on the side. Do the serious. The, yeah. Because it also, I think it keeps your writing chops up because yeah. you're hitting both eyes and it keeps your uh, yeah. your mind going. So Raising Hope, uh, another show that just gets bounced around the schedule. That must yeah, be frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It is frustrating. So it's, a really, on, it's a really good show. It's and really, it's, I've seen it. It's really, yeah. A friend of mine was just on an episode of it or he taped an episode. His name's Corey Jacob. He was the uh, Gary in all those NFL Network commercials. Nice oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He was on. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for having great. really fun. Uh, Twitter, give your give your Twitter stuff to the people. Do, they, do, uh, you, do you tweet a lot? I don't tweet a lot. You I should. Tweet, I know I should. Uh, I tweeted yesterday because it was a picture of me and Uncle Jack. Okay. It's uh, at TV's Tim Stack. Follow him. That's how I found him. I sent you the message on Twitter, yeah. which doesn't happen a lot, but I, I knew you work, and then uh, I just I was like, God. And then I found out you're from Doylestown because I do my research. I'm like, oh, this is great. He's a Philadelphia guy. So I want to thank you, people. Thank you. Listen to uh, this, go watch Raising Hope. Also, people, follow me at Cooper Talk on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 220 episodes up there. Also, iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Type in one word, Cooper Talk. 
Also, if you have one of those Android phones, if you go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk, you can get the Cooper Talk app, so you can hear me on your cell phone now. And if you have an iPhone, this is longer, so you might want to write it down. You have to do coopertalk.podbean.com forward slash mobile forward slash. My picture pops up. It's a great thing, so you got to check it out. Uh, yeah, keep listening. On, send me an email, coopertindy100. Follow me at Twitter, and that's about it. I just want to tell you guys have a great weekend. Um, hopefully, it'll still be warm here in California to the East Coast people. I hope it gets warmer for you. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Remember these three things. Eat your, take your vitamins, drink your water, and eat your veggies. Have a great weekend, and now it's time for me to get lunch.